you can open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. We're continuing, and for some of you, we're starting a series, a short series on the the, the doctrine, the, the precious truth of the believer's assurance, spiritual assurance. And we're asking the question, is spiritual assurance something that you can even have as a young believer, as a new believer? What does spiritual assurance look like for you? Where does it begin? How does it start? How does it grow? Those are the kinds of questions we're asking. And... The, the main point of all of these messages, I think, is going to come back and back again to the person of Jesus and how he calls disciples to follow him. I again and again think of that when I think of assurance. Are you following Jesus as he calls you to follow him? That is where assurance is found and joy is found in him. Um, and that's basically, I think, the, just kind of the overarching theme of assurance that you find flowing from the Gospels through the epistles and the letters of the New Testament. Jesus wants you to walk after him and find joy in doing so and find assurance in doing so. Jesus wants you to do that and he gives you abilities to do that. And there's kind of two ways to, to approach the idea of assurance. You can first approach it, and, and you need to approach it in these two ways. You can approach it theologically. Who, who is God? How, how does the character and the power of God give me assurance of salvation? Well, what, do I, what do I gain from learning about the, the completed work of Jesus on the cross? I gain assurance of my salvation. The finished work of Jesus on the cross and his continuing work as high priest in heaven gives me assurance. That's, that's one way you've got to approach the idea of assurance. And then there, there's the other way, the more practical and personal way. Who, who are you now? Who are you as a new creation in Christ Jesus? How does that give you assurance? And what are the things that you are called to do? Uh, how do these things uh, promote assurance in your life? Obedience to Christ promotes assurance in your life. And also knowing the truths in Christ also promotes assurance in your life. That's kind of what we're talking about. And those are kind of the, the two fists we're going to use to, to pound assurance home, right? The, the theological and then the practical personal, okay? Um, today we're, we're talking kind of on both levels. And this is kind of an uh, uh, introductory slash not introductory message on the idea of assurance. This is um, what we find in the parables of Jesus in Matthew 13. Now, I want to just read the entire chapter of Matthew 13. And there's a risk here. There's a risk that you're all going to blank out, right? Because you're familiar with this chapter, particularly the first, you know, 23 verses of this chapter, the parable of the sower and the soils. We, we know this chapter well. But I want you to... Listen to these verses and to this entire chapter as if you've never heard them before. I want you to listen to them as though you're hearing them for the first time and as if you're listening to them as you've been walking through Matthew and now are wondering what's going to happen to the kingdom now that the nation of Israel is rejecting Jesus itself. That's, that's, that's the, the, the mindset that you have to have as you listen to these parables. We're going to start in, in actually Matthew 12, 
12, just once again, I want, I want you to see these parables in a fresh way. So let's start in Matthew 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? It's kind of a mean-sounding thing to say. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There you go. There's some assurance for you. Chapter 13, verse 1. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood up on the beach and he told them many things in parables saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, and they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, their their case, uh, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, saying, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for you see and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is this is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful as for what was sown on good soil this is the one who hears the word and understands it he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold in another case sixty and in another thirty 
He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, real quick, before I continue to read, take a break, breathe. And as I read the rest of the chapter, ask yourself, are there parallels? Are there themes that repeat themselves from what I just heard? Is, is, are, there, are there themes that are repeated? Are there words that are repeated? How come some of this stuff that follows sounds so familiar? Ask yourself those questions as I continue to read. Uh, Continuing in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine uh, pearls, who on finding one One pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that is thrown into the sea and and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, 
men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said, yes. And he said to them, therefore... Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, what did this, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his Mary call or his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Well, real quick, what did you guys see? Did you see anything repeat itself? Do you see any themes continue? Any interesting observations you want to make that you saw in the reading? Just from my helpful verbal hints, maybe? Uh, any, anything? Anything? Joel. The kingdom. Yes. There you go. It's as easy as that, people. There's the kingdom all throughout this. This is the parables of kingdoms over and over again. Yes, Isaac. Judgment? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Um, but judgment not in all the parables, but judgment in two parables. And both of these parables both describe this great neck or this great field that has a mixed group in it. And at the end, in both parables, actually, Jesus describes those parables in detail, right? In the net and in the field. Both of them are described. But only those parables are described besides the sower. Isn't that interesting? Yes, what else? Um. How it's described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes, right? And, and you see that same description, once again, in the same kind of parable. When, when he's talking about gathering all the fish or gra- gathering all the wheat and the weeds, he goes into detail about describing hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's where the bad fish are thrown. That's where the bad uh, weeds are thrown as well. So there's, there's a connection. There's, there's a con- uh, parallel there. Anything else? Yes? A select group of people. Yep, yep. There's, there's the disciples early on who are said, you have been given the secrets of the kingdom, right? That's the, the parable of the sower, right? It's actually not a parable about the kingdom. He never actually says the kingdom of heaven is like in that parable. But he, he basically says, here is the, a parable about the parables, right? Uh, if you want to understand parables, here's a parable. Oh, my word. Jesus, what are you doing? Um, you guys are the good soil because you have been given the secrets of the kingdom. And then notice, and notice at the very end of the parables, the last parable is another parable about parables, right? The master of the house. Do you understand these things? And I always thought it was kind of funny when the disciple says yes. I just don't think they did. (laughs) But that's just me, side thing. But then he says, yes, therefore you have been trained and you can understand things, right? So there's there's a group here, a specific group that has been trained while others just hear parables. Anything else? It's just getting fun, people. 
It's just getting fun. Yes, Juliet. In the Yes, right? He, he, he goes out of the house to speak in parables, and then when he goes into the house, specifically in verse 36, his disciples come to him in the house, and that's where he explains the parables to them. And there's this suggestion here, if you want to understand parables, you've got to get close to Jesus. You've got to be in the house. And that brings up another thing. Did you see anything else about households? Any other references to households? There's a few. There's the master of the house. There's the there's the the master of the house is the farmer as well. That's another thing. Anything else? Yes, Isaac. Yeah. What about it? Oh yeah. yeah. Yep, yep, a master of a house. So there's that, that, that key word, house. I'm not sure about the connections always, but there's houses all throughout the parables, kind of like there's kingdoms. Yes, Matthew? It talks about the servants. The servants. Yeah, there's, there's repeated reference to the servants. Often the servants are equated with the angels. But the thing I wanted you guys to see was I, I intentionally read uh, Matthew 12 beginning because you notice Jesus describes people who are outside of the house people that are outside of his spiritual family. You may be physically close to him, but are you spiritually close to him? And at the end of the parables, once again, remember, he goes to his hometown where his house was. And people don't recognize him, right? So, so Matthew is intentionally, notice how he, he starts and he ends the same way. Notice throughout the parables, there are, there are parallels within the parables themselves. So, but that's just fun. Sorry. Um, Matthew 13, we are going to look at one parable plus two more. So we're going to actually look at the parable of the weeds. Very interesting to me. Beginning there in verse 24. And notice, not explained curiously enough until verse 36. Now this is the parable. We're going to look at the parable. Then then second point, we're going to look at the point of this parable. And then I want to suggest to you Uh, there's specific meaning inside the way the parable is presented to us in the packaging of the parable. So, if you're taking notes, number one, point number one, we've got the parable. The parable. The setting, of course, is Matthew 13, and it's very important for you guys to recognize that this happens, verse one, on the same day as something else. This happens on the same day that, basically, the religious leaders of Israel accuse Jesus of working by the power of the devil. They say, you do a lot of impressive things, but it's by the devil. And that is blasphemy of the highest kind. So we see a separation begin here between Jesus and Israel. And this is a very significant statement, again, because Matthew does not try to be chronological in his account of Jesus. Matthew rarely connects things so closely like this, but he wants you to see that this, that the parables are beginning on the same day that this terrible act of unbelief and rejection of Jesus has happened. There's a a connection. And and what is the connection? You see it there as as Jesus describes kind of the parable of the uh, the sower and the soils. These parables are meant to reveal things previously unrevealed about the kingdom of heaven and how it's going to work, right? There is going to be, we talked about this last week, a delay between the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom. There is going to be a delay that is not seen in the Old Testament that is going to be seen now, 
right? The Jews said when the Messiah comes, worldwide judgment's going to come, because that's what the prophets are all about, and then he's going to set up a kingdom and fulfill all the promises to Abraham and to David. But, but Jesus is here to say that's true, but there's going to be a delay between. And now I'm telling you parables that reveal this previously unrevealed information. Jesus is not reinterpreting Old Testament promises. Jesus is not spiritualizing the kingdom. He is saying, this is what's going to happen from here on out that wasn't revealed previously. And, and the parables reveal secrets, but are not to be, to be misunderstood as ununderstandable. right? There are certain people that the parables are understandable to, the disciples for one and you you notice that key thing in the house out of the house that's kind of Matthew's hint and and the structure is interesting to me and uh, I'll only talk about this for 13 seconds here we go ready set go all right notice the parable begins and ends the same way with a parable kind of about parables and notice the next parable the parable about the weeds um, is paralleled to the the second to last parable which is the dragnet I'm just, just a suggestion here. Um, and then notice the next parable, the mustard seed, talks about something that's very small, but at the same time very valuable. Just a suggestion. And then notice the third to last parable, the parable of the pearl of great value, is something small, but something incredibly valuable. I'm just making a suggestion here. Notice the next parable, uh, the leaven, is something, uh, something hid inside something big. And on the other side of what I'd call a chiasm shaping out, <laughs> we've got a parable in verse 44 about a hidden treasure, something hidden in something big. And what's between all of that? We've got this statement about how Jesus said everything to everyone in parables. And we also have this statement about how he explained secrets to his disciples as well in the explanation of the weeds. Just a suggestion, take it or leave it. Tate's not here, so it's pointless. I don't know why I even brought it up. But Okay, so let's get into the parable itself. You see the parable in verse 24 all the way through verse 30. Um, and there needs to be a little bit of explanation here. First off, you see in verse 25, there is this incident of this farmer planting this field full of wheat. And his enemy, it's literally the enemy, plants some weeds in the field. And this refers to a very common practice, believe it or not, of weeds getting into a wheat field, particularly a, a certain kind of weed that was very common and very hated. Uh, you see there a footnote, at least in my Bible, there's a footnote two going down, probably Darnell, a wheat-like weed. And that particular weed was known, it had many names, nicknames for it. One of the names was Cheat. The cheat weeds. Cheat wheat. Cheat wheat. We got some cheat wheat out there. Why? This particular kind of weed looked a lot like wheat. Matter of fact, it looked like wheat for the very beginning stages of the growth and didn't really show its hand until its ears started to come out and it started to produce its seed. And then it, it only revealed what it was when its fruit was produced. Interesting, right? And not only that... When its fruit was revealed, it, it was known as this cheat wheat because instead of the color of wheat, it had black fruit. And to add another kind of edge to it, it was also known to be poisonous, deadly. 
So, imagine you've got this nice wheat field that you just planted, and you discover that you've got some weeds in it. And you don't know about it until they're all grown up. And they're producing rotten seeds. And this seed is poisonous. That kind of kind of destroys the commercial value of your crop. I mean, can you imagine walking into a McDonald's and the person welcomes you there saying, thank you for coming. We're just, just, just so you know, we're in the process of an investigation. There was a rat in our kitchen last night. But don't worry, we killed the rat. Nothing's the problem. Enjoy some food. <laughs> kind of kills the commercial value of the McDonald's, doesn't it? I, uh, I'd be nervous to go there. Well, you guys just had uh, alkali in your lettuce last week. Don't worry, I'm sure nothing's the problem. Let's just go chow down on this burger, right? No, this is, this is a huge problem for the farmer. And there's only one or two options that he has. He could burn up the field, or he could put his servants through the painstaking labor-intensive work of separating out the wheat from the weeds at harvest time. But this would take a lot of time, and this would take many more workers to be added to the harvest team, so it would be money. It would be money out of his pocket. You even notice there in verse 28, the servants don't really want to do the whole sorting out. They're like, should we just pull them out now, maybe? Maybe we'll get away with it. And he says, no, and, and notice the reason he says in verse 29, if you pull them out now, you'll uproot the, the wheat as well. And, and the reason for this is the, these, these, the, these weeds grew their roots into the, the surrounding wheat. And so in you, if you were to pull up the weed, it would pull up the wheat as well. So there was no option but to wait until the crops were chopped and laid and then separate them now. And, and this is really the point of the parable. Jesus wants to emphasize something. He wants to emphasize that this farmer is going to let these two crops grow together. This master is going to intentionally choose a mixed crop because the crop that he has planted is so valuable to him. He said, it is worth it to me to wait to separate out these two until judgment. That is the parable, and that... uh, already suggests to you the point. So uh, part number two, the point, and Jesus tells you what the point is in verses 36 and, 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 and on. Jesus tells this whole parable to provide a kingdom picture to his disciples. This is how it's going to look. You are going to be in a mixed world. You are going to be like wheat planted and Weeds planted among you, and you won't be able to tell who's who until fruit is produced in both lives. And you're going to have to wait until the day of judgment to experience the presence of the kingdom. So you're, you're going to grow in a world filled with weeds. But the kingdom will come after this time when Jesus himself sends his angels to separate out the good from the bad. And that's the basic meaning. And it's interesting to me, there's just a few just observations here. Remember, the kingdom comes with judgment, and this comes at the end of the age. So we're not in the kingdom now. And this, this weed, this darnel that is sown, are, is specifically described in the explanation as sons of the evil one. And notice they are known by their works. 
They are the ones who cause, in verse 41, sin and all law-breaking. They're known by their works. Or, if you're a Bible reader, that's another word for fruit. They are known by their fruit. And this is their fruit, lawlessness. Right? They, they cause sin and they, 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 they break God's law. That is what characterizes these sons of the evil one. That's just a few observations. What does the parable, though, what does this parable in its point have to do with assurance? I said, hey, we're going to have a little short series on assurance. David, this is not very assuring. What what does this have to do with assurance? I have uh, three, three reasons why this is very important to your understanding of assurance and your experience of assurance. Uh, Number one, it is important for you to understand as a young believer that this is the world that you live in, isn't it? You live in a world full of spiritual counterfeits. You live in a world that initially produces, can produce, people that look good. And I mean, that's just the world... And in the church, we see that reality too, right? A lot of people, a lot of people look like they're Christians initially in the Christian life. A lot of you look like you are Christians, but this is the spiritual climate that we live in, full of counterfeits. And, and it's impossible to tell until the fruit comes who is who. As a matter of fact, I would say we don't really want to give everyone who claims to be a Christian assurance. Because that's not very compassionate uh, actions. Right? We don't want to just say, oh, you are a Christian? Oh, that means you should have absolute 100% assurance that you are saved. No! We don't want to injure someone like that and deceive someone like that because we understand that we live in a world that is mixed. And that's the the second thing that I want to say to you about assurance here. Greater and greater assurance is a result of time and a result of fruit. That's where the assurance comes from, from time. Fruit is the key. Appearances are not the key. Feelings are not the key. Emotions are not the key. What you do is the key. Life change is the key. If you want assurance, your life actually changing is what brings you assurance. Assurance starts, it starts, oh, don't get me wrong here. Assurance begins with absolute faith in Jesus' work and Jesus' words. But assurance is strengthened by demonstrating that faith through the fruit of your works and your words. You, you grow in assurance as your faith is demonstrated in Christ's word and Christ's works. You, you show off your faith and your trust in him. Assurance is not a feeling. It's a result of faith active in your life. It's trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and living differently because of that trust. And another thing I want to tell you about this parable and concerning uh, assurance Do you realize that the the very fact that the the kingdom is delayed 
gives you a chance to grow in your assurance. Or, say it another way, Jesus' delay is for your fruit to be displayed. Right? The, the farmer here wants to let the crop grow so that it can produce fruit. And that's similar to why you are left in this world, to demonstrate the true transformation that has happened in your life. So, living in the world, living in a sinful culture, isn't always a bad thing. Matter of fact, notice the the object of the, the Christian is not to get rid of sinners. The object of the Christian is to produce fruit that's demonstrated in a contrast to the world around them. That is, that is the object. That's where assurance comes from, from being in this world, but very clearly not of this world, because you follow a different king. Matter of fact, the believer, as days progress and as fruit continues, build in themselves a happiness and a joy and an anticipation for the coming day when they will be with Jesus. Right? Because with every day, with every bit of fruit that's produced in their life, more joy, more assurance is also built into their life as well. Fruit produces assurance, and that produces joy in your life. Incredible joy. The longer the real deals are in the world, the more they reveal who they are and the more assurance they have. Right? Because of the fruit that they produce. Now... Once again, you're probably thinking this isn't very assuring. I knew that, David. That's my problem. (laughs) I don't have any fruit in my life. I know I need it. How do I grow in this kind of fruitfulness? How do I grow in spiritual maturity that produces a yield like that? How do I grow in this assurance? How, how How does joy result from my obedience in my life? Where does that come from? Now here... I want you to just notice the packaging, the packaging of the parable. So this is point number three on my three-point sermon. Perfect sermon, by the way. Uh, The packaging. I want you to notice how this parable is presented to you. And I want to make a suggestion. It's tricky, but I want to suggest to you that Jesus has a lot to say to you about how maturity happens and how growth happens simply by the way he addresses these things. Packaging is very important. Packaging uh, shapes the message. Some of my favorite packages to unpack were my new iPhone. It just was sweet to me. It it made me feel like I was holding something precious and special in my hands because I opened it up. This is just an apple right there looking at me, staring back at me and saying, you are about to enter into a world of joy and satisfaction. All of your problems will go away. No temptation here. No problems here, right? It presents to you a picture of what you're going to experience in a few minutes. And sometimes the way things are packaged have have intents to shape the meaning of the parable. And I want to say this to you as well. I would suggest to you that the very fact that that Jesus separates the parable with the explanation of the parable, and and really Matthew does this too, and he puts the mustard seed and the leaven between the explanation and the parable itself, perhaps is a little instructive to you. You, the kingdom citizen, grow in faith with the qualities and characteristics of the kingdom itself. This is a uh, a joyful assurance passage to the believer. 
and also gives you a helpful how-to if we do it right. So first off, once again, I, I've already pointed this out to excruciating detail, but, but notice that there is, this, there is this separation here between the parable and its meaning and these other two parables. And this is, by the way, Jesus' style. He often delays interpretation for a few parables that explain that interpretation. You see this in Matthew 24 and 25 when Jesus is talking about being ready for he's coming and you don't know when. And he gives you this parable, the parable of the, the faithful servant, the parable of the virgins, and then the parable of the, the talents, right? And then they're all saying exactly the same thing, and that is the picture that Jesus paints at the very end about his, him on his judgment seat separating the sheep and the goats, right? So Jesus does this where he intentionally delays an explanation in order to illustrate his point. But that's just a side thing. But here's my theory about these parables. Jesus here provides two parables about the growth of the kingdom to answer these simple questions of, first off, why you should have assurance and where you can grow in such assurance. Okay, so here we go. Uh, parable, Parable number one. Remember, this is all in the context of a delayed kingdom. A delayed kingdom. We have parable number one. We have this mustard seed. Now, for those of you that are botanists, this is a mustard seed, and that is not the smallest um, seed in the universe. An orchid is. But in Israel, a mustard seed was the very smallest seed that you could find. And uh, between all of the garden plants, which is the comparison here, not between all of the trees in the forest, but it's between the garden plants, a mustard seed would grow to be the biggest. It would grow to a size of 12 and 15 feet in height. And and the, the basic picture of the kingdom that we see here that Jesus wants us to understand about this kingdom is, though it is delayed, though it begins in a small and humble way, Though it seems insignificant in its start, it's going to surge in its growth. It is going to be massive in its result. The the work of Jesus will result in a throng of people, a multitude of people, giving glory and praise to God. And this is where we just turn it back to God and say, praise God. Right? Because he has turned sin once again into greater glory for himself. He did that in the garden, and now he's doing it again when Israel rejects their Messiah the first time. He turns it into an opportunity to get greater glory for himself. More people are going to be added to the kingdom and praise Jesus forever because of sin. And that is the sovereignty of God on display. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's going to start in this small, insignificant way that doesn't seem to be that powerful. It's going to start with me dying on a cross. And that is going to save a multitude of people. This is the exact same way that we understand the gospel, right? It begins with a sense of foolishness and humility on our part. It begins with you having to deny yourself It means you have to deny your right to be before God in your own works. It means you have to deny the lordship of your life. And it also means you say, I am no longer following me. I am following Jesus and Jesus alone. That is foolishness to the world, 1 Corinthians tells us, right? Foolishness to the world. It starts small and insignificant and seemingly weak, and it grows into great strength and power. That is the way 
the, the kingdom works in the person of Jesus, and that is even the way your own salvation works. It begins with something small and foolish and, and results in something big and powerful. And by the way, just a suggestion here, Remember the parable that's parallel to this parable, perhaps verse 46, the kingdom of heaven is like uh, someone, a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had. Remember what Jesus said to those who would follow him? He said, you have to follow me, you have to follow me as someone who is more valuable than all this world has to offer all at once, right? You, if you miss me but gain all of the world, Jesus says in Matthew 16, you have forfeited your life. No, no, the same concept is here in this very parable, right? He's willing to sell all that he has and buy this single pearl because it's more valuable than anything else in the world to him. That is the same foolishness that we see in the mustard seed, right? kingdom starts small, it gets big. It's true of the kingdom of God, and it's true of your own personal life as well. The the second parable is, believe it or not, the shortest parable, and believe it or not, the hardest parable. Uh, This is the parable of the leaven that a woman took in verse 33 and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, first off, probably most of you do not have experience with bread making, so maybe this is going to be lost on you. I had to look this up and understand it myself, but this is a parable not of phenomenal growth, but of phenomenal expansion. Because leaven, leaven just seeps in. It doesn't grow. It, it, it infects and influences the dough that it is put into, hidden to. So it, it influences, it shapes, and it grows, and it changes the loaf of dough that it enters. This is a parable about expansion and influence. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, just some background. This woman uses a tremendous amount of dough. 40 liters of flour, a whole bushel full. This is enough to feed 150 people. This is a massive amount of dough itself. And just a little leaven is pictured here as entering the dough and influencing, shaping, changing the way the whole loaf ends up. All right? You see that? Now, what is this talking about? Okay. I've been talking for a really long time. But now I'm going to get a little bit technical because there's two views. So please, just pretend like I wasn't talking for the last 40 minutes and just start listening to me again right now, okay? So there's two views. There's view number one. There's the negative view. And and to, to be honest with you, this is the view that I was convinced of Monday and Tuesday. This is the view that kind of is popular in the circles that our church is popular in. And I read one commentary that was very convincing to me. And then I read some more, and then my mind began to change. What is this picture here? This is a negative picture of evil being mixed in in this world, and how evil can have an influence in this world. It's, it's hidden, it's sneaky. We see that kind of picture in the weeds, in fact, right? Evil is, is hidden in there, and we don't see it until the result, until the fruit comes out. And there's many reasons why this is a very attractive view to me, Right? First off, if you have a Bible mind at all, you know that leaven is bad. Every time I hear leaven, it's bad. Leaven must be bad here, because leaven's bad. The Pharisees are bad, so leaven's bad, right? Another reason, the hiding seems sneaky, nefarious. Verse 25, for example, 
um, also theologically, right? The scripture speaks of a world that's not getting better, it's getting worse. All the, the later epistles in the New Testament, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Don't expect it to get better and better and better. So, so I expect this parable to be talking about evil influence in the world making things worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. That makes sense to me. And then the connection to the weeds. But there's some problems with this interpretation, of course. Number one, and this is really funny to me when I thought about it, leaven isn't always bad. Matter of fact, in the world that Jesus lived in, leaven was pretty cool. Leaven made bread taste good. Let's just be honest. It made it taste good. And it expanded the bread. It helped it grow. This is, this is a good thing. Matter of fact, did you know um, the reason why you think leaven is bad is because of the sacrificial system and the days of unleavened bread, right? But do you realize when you're saying, hey, there, there's this whole time where the Jews were forbidden to eat leaven. Do you realize what you're saying there? You're saying there was the rest of the year when they were allowed to eat leaven, right? The days of unleavened bread imply that there are days of leavened bread. Happiness, we call them, right? Because leavened bread is much better than unleavened bread, right? Matter of fact, some sacrifices even prescribed leaven in them. Oh, no. Right? So leaven isn't always bad. Leaven is predominantly good. Another thing that's interesting in this parable is verse 33. I mean, just simply, Jesus is comparing the kingdom to leaven. Now, he might be comparing the situation to that situation, but the kingdom is leaven. What's going on there? And then also, hiding isn't always bad. Case example, remember the hidden treasure in the field. This is a good thing. This is a helpful thing. This is something you sell everything you have to get, right? And by the way, I mean, I read this and I liked it, and that was the reason why, uh, the reason why I liked this, this interpretation of it being evil was reason number one for me to not like it. Because I want to naturally find my theological interpretations, my theological beliefs in my passages. And actually, if you're, if you're honest with yourself, this view of this parable actually seems to push more of a theological position than it is actually pulling out truth, right? I mean, if you are just telling this parable to a Jew, leaven is good, and leaven is a quality that you want in your dough. Leaven, leaven, leaven is the thing we get to enjoy all the other days of the year that aren't the days of unleavened bread. This is a good thing. It's, it's a helpful thing. So I am tempted to not interpret it that way. And this, of course, brings up the other view, the, the, the positive picture. This is a picture of the growth of the kingdom, even in this world, even in this field, even surrounded by these people, kingdom citizens grow and produce fruit, if we're to mix the parables at all. Matter of fact, it's interesting to me that when Jesus is, is told to give this parable in Luke 13, 20-21, it's not surrounded by the parable of the weeds. And therefore, you, you get this, this idea, there's no, there's no concept of evil being connected to this parable at all. And so it would seem to suggest the most natural reading is, hey, this is a positive thing. The kingdom of heaven is going to have influence. It's going to be something hidden, but it's going to be a hidden treasure in a field that some people are going to find, and in their joy, they're going to buy the whole field. It's going to be a treasure in a field that's going to transform the value of what was previously unvaluable, right? 
How does, how does it work? How does the kingdom of heaven work in this time of delay? Well, it works secretly and in a way silently, but powerfully, right? Once the leavening effect starts, they say it is unstoppable. It will shape and influence the rest of the dough. Are both of these parables really like the picture of the gospel spreading that we saw in Acts? I think so. The word of God is spoken of in Acts as something that is unstoppable, powerful, and will influence the world around them, even though it is opposed by the world around them itself. The kingdom of of God has growth that is surprising. The kingdom of God's growth in its citizens is also unstoppable, as the gospel is unstoppable. Notice, we're not talking about in this time of delay between these Jesus' coming and his kingdom as the kingdom being present, but the kingdom's citizens growing in this period of delay. And this even in a mixed field. And I would suggest to you that the message of the gospel has a similar result in your own life, right? It is a surprising result. It grows massively in your life. And it is an unstoppable thing when you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life. It is a phenomenal growth that you will see, and it is a phenomenal influence that you will experience. And this is the preaching of the gospel personally, not just the the kingdom. The, The kingdom message is also the message we receive in the gospel. Now, what does this have to do with assurance? Now, I've been talking for a really long time, so just pretend like I wasn't talking for the last 45 minutes and just start listening again, because this is the thing I've been talking about the whole entire time. The way the gospel works on a large scale in saving countless millions for Jesus' glory is also the way the gospel works in your heart and life. It will produce fruit. It will be powerful. It will be sneaky and silent, perhaps, but it will influence everything. How do, you produce, how do you pursue growth? How do you pursue maturity? How do you pursue fruit, then? You grow as a disciple the same way you start as a disciple. Right? You turn from your sin daily. You repent daily. You believe in the truth of Jesus daily. You follow Jesus as Lord daily. You preach the gospel to yourself daily. And that produces growth. That's the first steps of assurance. And that produces continued assurance in your life. Growing. You grow like the kingdom grows. You must pursue Jesus, though, in a certain way. You must pursue him as more valuable than anything else. Right? like that pearl. You must find in him more joy than anything else. Like that treasure. That's what Paul wants to do in Romans. You know the gospel, or the the gospel written to the Romans. Paul goes into detail to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who already know it. Why? Because that is where maturity comes, growth comes, and assurance flows. And the joy of assurance flows. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I thank you for this 
a moment in time where we get to think about these parables, and I pray that it would be helpful and instructive for us as we continue to pursue true spiritual assurance in the Christian life. We pray this all in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.